Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have John Caswell here with me from London. Welcome to my podcast, John. It's great to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's really great that our paths have uh, crossed. A short intro, John Caswell created Group Partners as an antidote to the frustrations and missed opportunities of the leaders in the business world. He saw the lack of creativity and thoughtfulness forced on businesses through legacy processes, investment in the wrong objectives, and generally how easy it was to solve the wrong problems really well. And above all, he saw how these things were the better for being brought to life visually. So John, the visual part is key and central in your work, of course. But also um, this thing that I, I heard you uh, in one interview talking about the fact that the devil is not in the detail. The devil is often in the big picture, which hides in plain sight. And that big picture is, of course, very, very uh, frequently so for business leaders that are in the midst of their uh, business creation, it's very difficult to see. So how do you how do you work with this? How do you go about helping them? I was very lucky. My father was an incredible person. I'm sure we all say that. But in this case, I used to sit and watch him draw these incredible diagrams on his drawing board. He was an engineer in the um, aeronautical space. So he would make these incredible drawings. And at one level, as you stood a distance from it, it was an aircraft engine. And of course, that was an easy concept for me to grab, you know, these things that flew in the sky and there was an engine on the wing and you could see it powering this incredible machine. But the detail inside the engine that he would be having to draw to design how this thing worked just literally blew me away. And it was, it was not only incredibly detailed and yet simple, but it was a work of art. And it was inspiring at that very early age. I would have probably been, you know, seven or eight years old, I guess, something like that. And it, it stuck with me all the time that you need to move away from the picture to see what it is. But it doesn't mean that you don't need the detail that sits behind it. It was a profound moment for me. And um, it kind of, to your question, makes me realize that, you know, that the leaders of these organizations have this incredibly powerful machine that they need to understand in detail, but they miss, they miss the point if they don't stand back and see what the big objective really is. And, and what is the best way to really actually have a vision? You know, it's, it's equally difficult to have a vision for yourself as a person, right? But even for an organization, what is your advice? And first of all, what is actually a vision? It's so subjective. I think that, you know, having a passion is, is part of, you know, businesses becoming what they are. But after a while, they become machines. And these machines almost forget what gave birth to them in the first place. So the, the leaders of an organization that's grown to be a large-scale organization, the sort of people that I'm working with mostly, have really forgotten what drove them in the first place. So my job now is quite often re 
rekindling that thing that made the company brilliant in the first place and helping the leaders to to do something that perhaps they didn't create, but they have huge stewardship for. And of course, these days, this brings us into some very interesting territory because organizations need to be much more ethical and more moral and more sustainable and much more accountable to their consumers because the vision the consumer has is of a place where they're not corrupted or abused or um, defrauded and it creates this kind of space where vision becomes something completely different and that it's important to have a vision. And the vision nowadays has to be, you know, I ask my clients to answer the question, I see a world where, and I love the silence when I'm sitting in front of a a senior group of executives and get them to answer a question like that. I see a world where, And if the first thing that comes out of their mouth is sustainable profit and increased margins and, you know, market leadership, (laughs) I'm deflated because it's like the world doesn't need another one of them and the world doesn't need another one of you. It needs things to to be better and different and more humane and more Mm. real, authentic, with integrity. I remember a picture that I've got hanging in my apartment here. And it's of a it's a, a wooden tool for gouging out a sculpture from a block of wood. So all there is is this little gouge and a block of wood. And the story goes, you know, the, the people walking along the street in India somewhere and they see the wood carver and they say, it's amazing, how do you make these elephants? And the guy says, well, I take a block of wood and I take my little tool and I cut away everything that isn't an elephant. And it was, it was these kinds of ideas that drive, well, they drive me now to help businesses try and recast and reimagine their vision from what it is that they've got. Uh, anyway, it's, it's a long answer to your question, but it's such a powerful territory that um, it's kind of what I'm doing visually with these organizations is to cutting away everything that isn't part of what makes them so that they can see their future and go after it. That must be so um, so inspiring, and and um, a little bit of what you were all talking about is you know some of the kind of work realities I work with as as well. But I feel it's it's so important also to kind of um, appreciate the fact that there it is actually a permanent journey of discovery. All of this, uh, and to have that kind of lens uh, on. It, it really is, yeah. I mean, the world now is so dynamic and so full of change that if your strategy isn't one of perpetual reinvention um, and i use those two words together quite often you know perpetual reinvention imagine what that's like for an organization well it's virtually impossible because the problem with organizations is that they they want low risk so they build things that are you know permanent but that's not what the world is about that the minute they've installed these large processes and systems they're out of date so it's incredibly difficult i have a huge amount of sympathy for business leaders who've got to try and struggle their way through this notion of perpetual reinvention and it becomes not so much about strategy it becomes much more about mindset and and there's a big difference um because you know what we used to trust as strategy and plan is now dynamic change and perpetual reinvention in a world that's so dynamic that 
it's bewildering. And this is the challenge, I think, for organizations now is to find people that have that mindset that allows them to be permanently prepared for whatever, no matter what's going to come at them. So the, these challenges are so different, even from just a few years ago. And also I'm thinking, you know, who who has the truth in a way? I That's why I think it's the, the, the most important thing for a company, for a person who's at least leading a company is to somehow both have the, the the courage actually to say some very often, you know, I don't know, but let's find out together. Right. 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 And, and then through that, you give people permission to kind of not only just help you out, but to trust uh, in the unknown somehow. Right. Um, so true. Yeah. Trust, trust yourself in a way and so on, because actually, I mean, when you think about it, who, who has the perfect answer for if left or right is the right decision at this very moment. So, that, and that's, again, that's the power of, of having a vision, having a purpose of whatever you do, right. Uh, to be guided by that and respect that as your big boss, so to say. It's really interesting. You, you hit on a, a critical point for me, which is the co the art of co-creation of a strategic future or vision is just It was one of the big moments in my life that I've suddenly realized, you know, I'm onto something here. I would, I would, how this all came about was, you know, I would grab the pen out of huge frustration and walk up to the whiteboard and scribble on it and say, for goodness sake, guys, are we talking about trying to achieve this? And because I did, a, I was at art school and I could draw and I could draw on the wall, they'd go, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's great. Or it's better than what we've just been talking about or whatever it was. But putting it on the wall, honoring the discussion, capturing it in some way, did a number of very interesting things. It, it respected the idea of a, of a set of stakeholders. I could, I could convene the, the, the thoughts from everyone's heads in through this, through this visualization. They owned it. They weren't scared of it. They were proud of it because it, they could see that it had somehow come out of their own idea Therefore, they, they had it. They, they, they could use it. They could take it away as a tool. And what this did was um, allow them to um, have a framework within which they could think about their future. It, it gave them a tool that allowed them to iterate still further. And it was this simple act. And I thought, does this not happen? And, of course, it probably doesn't happen that way around. And the, the, seeing it visually did so much. It was such a powerful and profound way of getting people to a different place very quickly that wasn't my idea. And so I, I kind of, I sometimes feel like I'm against consultants who come in and, you know, their business model is not to necessarily leave that quickly. You know, they want to be around for the long term. I don't. I want to transfer the capability of this idea, this profound idea of visualizing something that's perhaps intangible and then leaving it to them to carry on. And, and it's proved to be, you know, an interesting model because that way, you know, whenever they have a challenge like this, you know, they bring me back in. So, you know, that's, that's been good. But more importantly, I want to arm them and equip them to be able to think that way themselves. So, yeah, it's, it's been an interesting one, that. Going back to you, John, what would you say is your, your passion, you know, that thing that is kind of driving you, throughout life when you look back at it and it's maybe easier for you to see that thing that is that you also may be willing to suffer something for oh wow um 
people look at what I do and I'm, I become sort of famous for drawing these incredible, you know, 100-foot systems diagrams like my dad did when I was a, a child. And it's not, not a rocket ship, but in a way it kind of is <laughs> this jet engine for these organizations. Um, but actually, it's not really what I'm doing. You know, as a creative person, I'm trying to solve problems. And I think my passion is solving puzzles and doing it with people who've got the same values. Mm. Uh, my sacrifice is probably doing it with people that don't have the same values, actually, because it's painful because, you know, it's like not invented here or, you know, they don't pay enough attention or they lack the capacity. They're not putting enough investment yeah. into it. You know, there is always organizations where that's the case. Mm-hmm. But I think it's that, you know, the puzzle solving. Somebody told me a great line a long long time ago and i've never forgotten it which is that the best thing we can do is to achieve decision quality and and of course in a business context that is such a a great idea decision quality so that every decision you make whilst it may not be the only decision it has quality and how do you get to that well you do it by having the most data to draw from and then some standards by which you would judge this or that and the, the visualization of these complex, often frameworks, which don't feel complex because everyone's building it together, so they never get lost mm-hmm. and they always see the outcome growing in front of them. What they're doing is they're making choices. Mm-hmm. And so I think, to me, that's solving a puzzle. And whilst I was in advertising and marketing and the media industry for many years, thinking that I was being creative, I was never really that creative because that business is about making money. It's not about making creativity it's but you know creativity is the means to the end of you know spending millions of dollars on advertising Mm. and that's a shame and that's why i left that industry because i found it to be slightly without the passion that i wanted to put into being a creative but i found it oddly by not being in the creative industry but being in the strategic industry helping business leaders solve problems and that was the most creative I've ever been and hey I can be visual too so it's, <laughs> it's like who, who knew <laughs> crazy but it's been good mm. but you need to read up and understand so much about a company in order to be able to help them with these strategic decisions even if it's of course the fresh outside kind of perspective asking the better questions and stuff like that is hugely valuable but so so a big chunk of your work kind of, I guess, must happen very much before you even um, sit down with them and work with them. It's true. I mean, there's, there's a good degree of contextual research, situational mm. analysis. Uh, but having mm. done it for as long as I have, I'm, I'm pretty mm. a quick study, as they say, on lots of these organizations and industries. But <clears throat> we do do our best to make sure we're up to speed before we sit in front of a bunch of leaders so we're not learning on their dime, if you will, because they have no time. So when they come into these situations, these these sessions, these retreats, we're pretty well versed. But there is another side to that, which is the closer I am to their world, the less objective I can be. Mm. And I'm violently impartial when it comes to challenging these leaders. So I'm, I know enough about their organization to ask the questions that our frameworks force out of them. 
but not enough to fall into the same assumptions and principles that, that need testing, the conventions that need challenging, the the traditional, we've always done it like that around here, you know, stuff that you, you tend to find. And increasingly, that's why business leaders are bringing us in because they want, they know they've got to change. They know they've got to move away from what made them great in the past to what's going to make them great in the future. So I like that high wire act. I always say to people, don't try this at home because <laughs> it's a pretty scary thing to do. <laughs> but it's great, yeah. But do you um, now, with all the experience that you have, um, feel that you've come to a point where you actually, you know, you're truly like picking out the companies or the brands or the leaders that you really, truly want to help because they are honestly wanting to use their business as an instrument for, for something good? That's a great question. They, they are increasingly finding us out in that we're positioned very much not as a consultant. So we've not got, mm. you know, software in the back of our mind or augmenting a, a staff organization with, with capability and people. You know, we're not that kind of business at all. We're really in the problem-solving area with leaders who need a coach or a mentor uh, rather than a consulting firm. They need somebody who will work alongside them to help them pick their way through the the challenges that they've got. Mm. Um, but you're right. Increasingly, people in leadership are recognizing that they need a conscientiousness and a, and a higher degree of morality to succeed in the long term because their customers are telling them that, mm. which is an encouraging place that they're customers their audiences will disappear if they don't pay more attention to the, the moral and ethical parts of their business and you know we're not into this screaming left wokeness that you know is also characterizing the death of virtually everything it's not that at all it's there's got to be a better way of building a, a more moral more ethical more sustainable business and so we're doing a lot of work. We've always done a lot of work, actually, you know, for charitable organizations, NGOs, the institutions that are trying to put back. We've done a lot of pro bono work ourselves in Africa, still you know, trying to do more. We're doing a lot in education, these kinds of areas, uh, the arts currently, but also associating ourselves with with institutions that are trying to do more of that, you know, finding groups of people that, feel and work like that and want to make a difference and want to perhaps collaborate in small groups to solve a problem that no one else is looking at. And what's encouraging is that there is investment money now seeking those kinds of teams of people who can come together to solve a problem like education, which is, which is certainly a, a big, one of the biggest issues for me if we don't solve that. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's a great place to be at the moment. When the clients are telling a company, you need to be this way, and then they go, do be that, it's not the same thing as if it had come from them, right? Because then it comes from the heart. It has a strong intention. So at least I have more love and respect for, for people and companies who 
have this kind of, as you say, clarity of what big idea are they driving and what are they solving things for kind of thing, rather than, oh, we picked up in a survey that this is how we should be, or this is what we should do more of, and then we go do that somehow. Do you feel that your time and resources and your talents in your group, um, that you use that better if you more pick and choose, so to say, what clients uh, deserve your talent, so to say. Um, yes. Or? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting one, isn't it? What comes first? I'm, I'm pleased that more and more leaders are waking up, however they got there. So if they read mm. it in a survey and it pricked their conscience, then that's great. Um, yeah. You're very lucky, okay. I think, to find leaders that, got up in the morning and built a company because it needed to be this way. And, there, and you know, there are some famous ones out there and some incredible people, aren't there? I'm sure we, yeah. we would both quote at moments like this, you know, the Chibani story and the Patagonia story. I mean, these are rare and they're famous, but they've led the charge and made a lot of other leaders wake up. So I wouldn't say we, we only seek out those that are already there, although it does make a difference to work with people who share your values. But the creative in me also wants to try and win over the ones that are teetering on the edge. <laughs> um, so I think I'd answer it, I'd answer that question that way around. I think we're still trying to save a few. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's great too. But sometimes I feel like when you get to a point in your life where, where you feel like, okay, where do I invest my time best, Right. Uh, in order to get um, the, the right kind of engines going faster. Yes, yes, yes. Let, let me add the following then. I think you're pushing me on this one quite rightly. I think if we were working with a client where it was obviously superficial and they didn't really mean it and they were using it as a as a camouflaged, yeah. <laughs> we would walk yeah. away without question yeah. and, and have done. So we've we've declined. And there are some industries out there that mm -hmm. we just wouldn't work with, and they're well known, you know. So there's that too, I think. But yeah, no, you're you're quite right. It's it's better to spend time working on those which are, are really genuinely authentic. John, um, we will have had our transformational points in our lives somehow that uh, have influenced us a lot. Uh, are there any of those that you'd like to share? So I think certainly, you know. I've mentioned my father and sitting at his feet, watching him draw on these big boards. That was definitely a profound moment. I think another profound moment, although it was dreadful, was being sent to naval school when I was 11. So I was removed from the sort of warm comfort of my family. And suddenly I was at a boarding school where it was, you know, cold showers at four o'clock in the morning. And, you know, there were six years of being in a kind of military environment, that was profound. That taught me the, the rigor of discipline and, you know, seeing how authorities worked, some of it good, some of it very not good. So that, that had an effect on me. I was lucky when I went to art school in Cambridge and I was friends with friends of mine who started the computer industry actually in the, in the UK. And uh, not a lot on their own, but they were a big part of it. And we produced something very famous, which was the BBC microcomputer. And I was very lucky to help them on that journey, which was spectacularly successful and then spectacularly unsuccessful. But 
that was a great lesson. That's where I learned and walked up to the wall and drew on the wall and said I was so frustrated that all of these silos would come together in these meetings and they'd all have a very different set of terms about exactly the same thing. And this also got me into witnessing how ad agencies and big strategic consultancies would come in and charge us millions of dollars and not really transfer that much capability to us, but we're very happy to carry on doing it at large fees. And I thought this was wrong. So I started my own creative business in London, which I did for a couple of decades before selling out to WPP, Martin Searle's company. Whilst I left very shortly thereafter, I did it not so much because I'd fallen out of love with the creative industries, but running a company is not was, wasn't to me being creative. And I started a creative company like that because I wanted to be a creative, but I wasn't. I was the managing director and CEO, and I wasn't being very creative. So I had to leave the creative industry to get into the creative industry, which I think was another transformational moment. And I think from then on... That was in 2001, 20 years ago. It's been a privilege to sit with leaders, helping them be creative. And as a creative person, you know, it's not about celebrity. It's about coming up with an idea and working with a team to get real value out of it. And that was probably running through it all and being able to visualize and being you know, creative with language as well as with pictures, it was, you know, those were the transformational points, I think. When you think about, you know, a company or business as such, I mean, it is a system as everything else we have, you know, the society, a family, a group, everything is a system. So a business is a system that is, you know, I, I'm thinking pretty much working well, right? So if we're going to use this system in the long run, what kind of alterations, changes would you wish for? You know, what kind of long-term solutions for business do you really believe in? easy competitive disruption i think if businesses want to stay around for the long term they have to learn that it is always going to be about disruption the minute a business starts to become successful i think if you look back at history you'll see businesses that have plateaued because they've stayed the same for too long and i think even if it's like with me with my own business you know i can always disrupting it I'm always changing it. I'm always messing with the, the way that people consume it. Not because I'm trying to mess around, because I'm always trying to stay the most current I can possibly be. And that's the creative mindset. In order to stay creative, you've always got to have your eyes on what's going on. And as we know, the rate of change is exponential. And it brings us back to that perpetual reinvention thing. I think the, the long term for a solution, solution for business is for them to teach their people how to be alive to everything all the time and not just sit in their marketing department or their manufacturing department, but to mess with it. Mm. Because digitalization has meant that these departments are no longer separate. They're together. If the marketing department has no idea what's going on in manufacturing and the other way around, you're going to pretty quickly end up with no manufacturing that's relevant to the market. doesn't make any sense. And, and digitalization has sped up those processes so quickly now that you are immediately, if you're in manufacturing, if you took that example, you know, you're that close to the market now. You can be manufacturing to dynamically provide solutions for your market. I mean, it's such an obvious statement. And yet I'm dealing with companies that, 
continue to think that they've got to keep these departments quite separate or they've got leaders who will not allow their knowledge from one department to move to the next department and it's like that's criminal you know that's a that's a that should be illegal but it's not you know it's it's so i think a long-term solution for a business is change the way you think about disruption not as a bad thing but as something that you owe it to your organization to to do Maybe it's the word disrupt that scares people a little bit because you're kind of disrupting something. You're like almost, right? It does. You're right. It does. It is scary, but it's being done to you mm. yeah. all the time. Your antidote to dis- to competitive disruption is to bring your own positive disruption mm. to your own organization. Perhaps that's the word. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a, I think that's that's what I would say. And uh, if you would assume that you have uh, all doors open to you and all resources available, uh, is there anything in particular that you would rush to, you know, go and innovate or change, you know, be it in your world or elsewhere? Mm. Yeah, I think I've already mentioned education. I think education is is broken. And I think I'd have to add very closely to it because I think it's part of the same thing is media. I think the media... Is, a, is obviously the whipping boy for an awful lot, but they are in a strong position to educate. And therefore, they are educating people to be consumers far too often, uh, or political far too often. And they are, because of our smartphones, you know, the, they are in the crosshairs for me of having way more accountability and responsibility than they take ownership of. So education, I think, as you go through school and, you know, you, you, if you whatever terminology definition you put to education, you are exposed to the media all around you, which is educating you. And I think it's a diabolical spectrum of conflict at the moment. I think we are in real danger of losing values, morals, standards. Wherever you look, there is... And I know we may see more of it because of the media and it's more it's more brought out into the open, but we have some real challenges, don't we, in society? You know, for hate, religious conflict, um, you name it. There's all sorts of things that are being waged and leveraged to have an effect on people, which is educating them or conditioning or brainwashing them to believe in things that are just not conducive to a fair society. There are two words, actually, that spring to mind. One is, um, I don't know whether you've ever come across this word, but it's agnotology. Agnotology is a real word. And if you go to Wikipedia, you can check it out. And it's, I've sort of boiled it down to three words, culturally cultivated ignorance, which is so horrible and it's it's the effect of society deliberately dumbing down and keeping the population ignorant so that they are not challenging or difficult and there are, are extremes of this in societies around the world but you know to me that is that is a pretty good expression of what i think the media is doing to people to to keep them consuming things that they can't afford or that they don't need and i'm talking in extremes to make my point and the other word which is slightly more amusing and fun and high, <laughs> uplifting, I suppose, but it's it's lalochesia. Have you heard of that? No. Lalochesia, which is the pleasure you get 
from using profane language. <laughs> and of course, the agnotology just makes me want to swear. It's, it's why I use those two words often together. It's like this horrible effect of society and, and media and lack of education and whatever it is, if I could wave a magic wand and put something right, I think it would be education and media. Yeah, no, I totally, totally agree, especially I'm uh, uh, just, you know, following also what's happening with my son and his group of people around him and so on. You see how they are influenced by different things and you really get scared also in terms of, I, I was just happy, for example, that he didn't enter into a, some kind of an elite business school because, you know, I was just thinking then then at least he won't get that kind of imprint from from that kind of, that kind of um, you know, beliefs. Uh, that you're not, you're not together is not better, you know, individual is better or stuff like that. So. Yes, totally. And we, I, I think it's why I was happy that I was sent away to, you know, the school when I was 11, it taught me, you know, to at least have some moral fiber and the standards were, you know, whilst they were brutal at times, you learn that there are, there are, there are good things in being disciplined and, and thoughtful and reflective about yourself and you don't really learn to love anybody else until you learn yourself and love yourself for what you are, flaws and all, right? So, yeah, it was. It, it's an important one. I'm glad your son didn't do that. He dodged a bullet, I think. Yeah, exactly. Expression. Yeah. So, but if you if you would give you know one piece of advice to leaders, uh, what would that be now? I think it goes back to the need for objectivity. I would, I would advise leaders to get a coach and a mentor, actually. I think someone that they trust and believe in, you know, someone like yourself or someone that they can talk to and know that they're going to get the right advice back. Somebody who's probably been there but isn't wedded to one industry or one discipline. I just find it hugely powerful to, you know, leaders – friends of mine who moved from one company to other just call, give me a call every now and then say, well, what would you do? You know, you've, you've been around this a few times and it's great. And it's just, you know, it's free. I know people do charge for this, but I, I just think you don't get that honest advice. Sometimes you get surrounded by the, the sycophants and the people that you're paying big salaries to, and you're not going to get the right advice from them. So I, I think that. And what about, you know, it's, it's kind of a typical question, I guess, in a way, you know, what advice would we have given ourselves like 15 or something, 20 maybe years ago? I was reading a book by uh, Yuval Noah Harari yeah. a while ago. Did you ever read his book, Sapiens and the 21st Century? Yeah. yeah I, mm-hmm. I don't know whether it was in one of those books, but I read it somewhere and he put it perfectly. He said, um, don't trust the grown-ups. They mean well, but they've absolutely no idea what's going on. Mm. <laughs> and I, I think if I'd, if I'd taken the advice that I got from all the people who meant well and advised me not to do something, I, w- I would have failed a lot earlier. <laughs> okay, you kind of have to s- believe in yourself occasionally, don't you? Mm. It's like your son. Why, didn't he, why did he not go to an elite, elite business school? Mm. He just had something inside him that said, nah, not for me. Mm. And 
my father wanted me to go into, you know, the Navy and the Naval College. We have a big established Naval College in, in the UK. Mm. And I knew it wasn't for me. You know, I just, I didn't want to let my dad down because I loved him dearly. But I explained that it wasn't for me and I gave enough reasons to do it. So I, I think believe in your gut, believe in your instinct. Mm. It's in this world, it's just as good sometimes. And learn by the mistake that you're going to make a mistake and you'll get it wrong. Mm. But you've got to have that mindset, don't you, of being open to learning what you learn. And sometimes we make the same mistake several times. I think one of the um, learnings lately I've, I, I've been doing is actually to realize that I'm very bad at asking for support and help and stuff like that. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix everything myself. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And, and sometimes, which leads you not to even be aware of the fact that you do need help, right? Or support or, or just, you know, somebody that you can double check or ask advice or whatever. Objectivity is so difficult, isn't it, when you're, mm. when you're in it? Mm. And this is the problem for leaders. You know, they, they, they have panels and boards and advisory boards. And I witness them. I go and they're not really getting objective advice. They're often getting what's politically correct mm. I mean, sometimes the great ones where you do get someone who doesn't care whether he's liked or not and, and tells it like it is, says you're absolutely wrong. That's just not what you should be doing right now. Mm, yeah. And someone who can stand up and politely walk you through perhaps a set of alternate scenarios, yeah, I think that's that's powerful. I'm here for you, Vesner, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, not knows what we would discover. <laughs> but what do you what do you think that um, is the most important thing for companies to focus on right right now in this moment of time that we are in? I think everything. I think it's it's so collapsed. It's it's a difficult one because if they focus on one thing, they will they will potentially solve the wrong thing. You mentioned it earlier, and you're quite right. You know the systems thinking. It's everything. Everything is a system. And I think if they can't train their teams to be eyes open and widely oriented across a whole broad category of things, then it, it's, it's a risk. It comes back to decision making. I think, you know, whilst it, it, to think about everything all the time is impossible, probably. It doesn't mean that at some level you can't have an eye on everything. And I think the thematics of business, I mean, we've boiled down the frameworks that we apply visually to, you know, a series of probably, let's say, eight to 12 constant themes. And if you study business plans, there are eight to 12 themes, you know, goals and objectives, measures of success, you know, operating models, visions, missions, strategic themes, current realities, business imperatives. Um, and, you know, you get to the, that level of, of thematic you can actually keep an eye on pretty much everything and digital is helping because it's bringing everything into a dashboard so as things become increasingly computerized you can see everything the next question is what choices are you going to make what decisions are you going to make so i think focus on decision quality focus on systems thinking focus on making things available visually and quickly therefore you know, it seems to me to be quite a strong set of things that business needs to, to focus on. But they have to have the right mindset, otherwise it won't it won't work. 
and great leadership. That's one thing I, I miss a lot, apart from, you know, everything you said about education before. Like, where are these leaders that can really, truly, like, inspire you, give you hope, able to kind of really engage you in, 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 a, in a vision and, and all of that to come from, you know, a moral imagination, so to say, also. Mm, you're quite right. Yeah. Where are they? You know, we have politicians, we have business leaders and so on. I mean, there are out there. I, I have the beautiful kind of, I don't know, luck of, of meeting uh, and, and knowing uh, many of them, but many are not on the public radar and they're maybe not there on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really interesting as well. They are definitely not there. They've made a conscious decision not to become a leader in political arena because of, you know, the media. I mean, and also, you know, the, the, the society that we've got at the moment mm. just tears you down. And you're quite right. I mean, where are the leaders that are prepared to stand up and, and make a big difference to the world? I, I think that's not what's going to happen. I think there are going to be emerging already there are people getting together who, who think like we do you know think that things can be better and are prepared to work in the background to provide mm. you know almost like a life support system for the planet i don't think it's going to be the leaders i think the leaders are the ones that are prepared to stand up and be shot mm. at because they're yeah. they crave fame and glory but there has to be some moral underpinning a fabric that you know, they're supported by a safety net, perhaps. And I think that may be one of the stepping stones towards the future. But I, it's it's definitely a big topic for me is to think, how how are we going to lead our way out of this mess? It was interesting. I, I st Another story, I was lucky enough to work with an organization called the Synergos Foundation, who are a lady who runs it, Peggy Delaney. She's, I think, the fifth or sixth daughter of... Uh, David Rockefeller or something like that. For, I apologize if I've got that wrong. She's amazing. And we did a session with her in New York a while back. And I was reading up on her and she wanted to do something for the street kids in Rio um, because she was passionate about these kinds of issues. I mean, they are, that organization is out to end poverty, which is a pretty big aim. And of course, obviously, a billionaireess, and you know, able to put money into pretty much everything. But she decided to spend a long time. I think it was almost like imagine a year out living as a street kid in Rio to, to see what it was like, rather than just put money in and have it not do anything. She was prepared to go that extra mile and really understand what it was like. And she she came out of that thinking that it wasn't about the money; it was about finding better role models. Because all these kids see is rape and murder and drugs. And so the role models, you know, became, you know, footballers or musicians or people who had a, a you know, a cool mentality to just show the kids that there is a different world that they can model themselves on. And I think that was interesting to me, that whole idea of role models. And it takes me back to coaching and mentoring where you're, you're at least hearing a slightly different view and you can hear scenarios that have come from people who've experienced the world in a different way. I found that fascinating. And of course, you look around and everybody does it now. You know, everybody wants to be, I don't know, some pop star or celebrity and, you know, wear that makeup and have that hairstyle. It's just crazy where we've got to now. It's just, it's obscene to me that 
we have this world that isn't being challenged more often. Which leads me actually to my, my last question for you, John, is, is what do you think the world needs most at this time? Well, maybe it's that. I mean, maybe it's... <laughs> um, I think you said it in, in, in your previous question, really, the lack of leadership. I think it really does need... Uh, friends of mine have said actually what the world needed was a pandemic. We had that, and I'm not sure what's really changed so far. But I do think people have become slightly more conscious of some of the topics that we've been talking about. I do think people have reflected more. I think people have had the chance to look sideways and, and have different conversations. Um, you know, we've met through that different lens on things, which has been incredible. And um, long may that continue. Maybe we are a little bit more open to the fact that there is more diversity, that there is more creativity and different ways to think about things. We worked in um, in Australia with the wealthiest man in, in Australia, who's, who's um, a very, very interesting and, and nice guy. And his daughter was, they were on holiday in the, in the Polynesia or somewhere like that. And she walked, took the wrong walk through a place that was selling saris, you know, and scarves and had, yeah. and she walked through thinking she was going to the restroom, but walked into the factory, which was about a hundred kids chained to sewing machines. And she came out screaming. And so they, they formed an institute uh, for human trafficking. And so we, we did a session with them um, in Perth, Australia, which was fascinating in its own right. And um, in that session, someone said, you know, we won't fight human trafficking because it's organized crime. And we won't be able to solve organized crime until there's a replacement economy. So again, a profound moment for me because... When you think about it, that's right. You know, these people, like we work a lot in South Africa and, you know, you find these poor people going and killing a rhino for its horn because they're going to get a thousand rand, which is nothing. You know, like 50 quid or 10 quid or whatever it is at the time, whatever the figure is, it's meaningless. But that's the only way they can feed their family. Otherwise, they will just die. And you think, well, that's the, there's a, there's a real insight in that notion of what is the replacement economy that takes away corrupt crime and, me and media and whatever else that we want to get rid of. What will we replace it with? So, yeah, I think um, nothing easy about that answer, though. So some combination of leadership role models, so to say, something to strive for. And then uh, I hope through education also that we can get this skill of, how can I say, human skill, which means really to be able to self-lead yourself. I mean... Self-leadership and, 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 and uh, all of those things that are so incredibly important, like also, I think, listening, the power of listening, uh, understanding. Totally right, yeah. Listening, understanding, internalizing, reflecting. You know, we don't teach these things at school, and it's so, so, such a shame. I mean, I'm sure your, your son is a great example. I'm sure he's a curious, interesting, confident human being because of the environment he was brought up in. I'm sure that's correct. And we are looking around at kids where that's not the case. You know, they are looking to influencers on Instagram for every piece of advice that they get. And it's 
you kind of expect what you're going to get really when that happens. And I think, yeah, well, we will find ways to solve these problems, hopefully, won't we, as humans, because we are ingenious creatures and hopefully we'll find a way through. But it's pretty rocky going, isn't it? Yeah. Thank you, John. Thanks so, so much for sharing and uh, for your time. By the way, how was it to be on the on the podcast? Oh, I really enjoyed it. You asked great questions and I, I thoroughly enjoyed um, having the conversation with you. Thank you so much for asking me. And um, To find out more, uh, you'll also find links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com. And um, do remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with people you know would benefit from, from hearing John. So please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. And thanks so, so much for listening. Until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao. Ciao, John. Ciao.